So when the largest higher education strike in United States history started over a month ago on November 14th, those involved had clear demands in mind. We at KCSB have been covering the state of those demands since the strike started. I've been checking in bi-weekly with Emily Fox, a PhD student at UCSB, and she's been keeping us informed on what's been happening at the bargaining table and in the minds of some of her fellow strikers. Proceedings got complicated. You can listen to past episodes to hear more on that. But the strike officially ended just a few days ago on Friday. The two unions who were still bargaining for their contracts at that point were SRU, the Union for Graduate Student Researchers, and UAW 2865, the Union for TAs, Tutors, and Readers. So now the strike is over, but that doesn't necessarily mean everything is sunshine and rainbows moving forward. I have Emily Fox here with me today to give us the rundown on the logistics and significance of these new contracts. Hey, Emily. Hi. So last time we talked, union members were just entering the voting period for these new contracts. They had all of last week to vote yes or no on ratifying these new agreements between their unions and the University of California. Catch me up to speed on the conversations that were going on between union members last week while voting was taking place. What kind of emotions were in the air? Yeah, so we were voting last week um, to either ratify or not ratify these tentative agreement contracts. And tensions and emotions were running pretty high. It seemed like people, most people were either like very strongly saying that we should ratify these contracts and end the strike and go back to work or we should not. And so I can give you kind of a bit of the arguments on each side. The group of people who wanted to ratify the contract were thinking we've made huge gains compared to, you know, our previous contract and we should kind of like lock in those gains and then moving forward, like next time around, push for more. It seems like these folks were pretty convinced that we couldn't get any more this time around or that our strike was like losing power, was less strong, and that if we said no to this, UC would not offer anything better or would potentially even offer something less useful. Whereas the folks who were voting no were pretty confident that if we voted this down, And if we kept striking, we could get much more. So on that side of kind of the argument, they were saying a lot of schools hadn't even passed their grade deadlines yet, which is one of the big points of leverage for at least like TAs, tutors, and readers. So withholding final grades would have exerted even more pressure on UC. So people who were hoping to not ratify the contract yeah, thought that if we hold on for a little bit longer, if we keep pushing, um, we can get even more of our our needs met in a contract. And so that was kind of the debate going on. And it really seems like it boiled down to kind of strategy and how we estimated our power. People who were voting no and trying to not ratify the contract thought that we still had more power. We could still pressure UC a bit more and get more get more of what we needed. Whereas the the other side thought this was kind of the best we're going to get this time around. Okay. And how close was the vote by the end? I know it wasn't a unanimous yes vote among workers, right? Yeah. So like you mentioned, these were two separate unions and two separate contracts. And so there were two different votes. So the one for UAW 2865, the TA Tudor Reader vote, had about 18,000 people voting and 62% voted yes and 38% voted no. And so for UAW 2865, that same one, 
it passed over 50% on all the campuses except for UC Merced, UC Santa Barbara, and UC Santa Cruz. So these three campuses had a majority of people voting no on this contract. So at UC Santa Barbara, we had 922 votes for no and 505 for yes. So only 35% of folks who voted at UC Santa Barbara thought we should ratify this contract. And then it was even more on the no side for UC Merced and UC Santa Cruz. So UC Merced had 27% voting yes, and UC Santa Cruz had 20% voting yes. Whereas all the other campuses had upwards of 60 to 70% voting yes. So I'm not I'm not surprised by how it broke down. UC Santa Barbara and UC Santa Cruz are, you know, some of the most expensive places to live. And these campuses were not included in like the upper tier of pay. So some campuses, UCLA, UC San Francisco, and UC Berkeley were given a higher raise than everyone else. And UC didn't really explain why they offered that. They just said market forces. But these three campuses by the end of the contract will be making $2,500 more per year. Um, But it's clear that those are not the campuses that are more expensive to live at necessarily. Um, Santa Barbara, Santa Cruz, San Diego are all just as expensive, if not more expensive than those campuses. And so I'm not surprised that these campuses were least satisfied with the contract. And UC Merced, they're a much smaller campus and they're usually like, like some of the more smaller newer campuses are usually more underfunded in UC in general. I think they also have like the largest grad student of color population there. Um, So that might've been part of it. UC Merced really pulled through for us. Um, And now everyone, like a lot of people who are on the no vote side are like, yes, UC Merced. (laughs) Um, Because it was pretty clear UC Santa Barbara and UC Santa Cruz would vote against. We were the two most vocal campuses during the Cola Wildcat strikes. And so it makes sense. We, we've, kind of been fighting these fights for a long time here at Santa Cruz and Santa Barbara and kind of have that legacy of like organizing and pushing for more. And then for SRU, UAW, the the researcher union, it passed by slightly more, but not a whole lot more. So they had about 5,000 votes and they had 68% voting yes and 32% voting no. And for the SRU votes, let's see, it was only UC Merced and UC Santa Cruz that voted against it. So Santa Barbara did have a majority vote yes to ratify the contracts. We were the third lowest vote, but it did pass the 50%. So it was 57% at Santa Barbara. Whereas all the other campuses had, again, upwards of 60%. And the highest was in the high 70s, like 80s. Another reason that there was a pretty big push, especially for the SRU union to ratify their contract is because until this contract, they didn't have any contract they were working under. So I think that added some extra pressure for for those workers and that they needed a contract as soon as possible to get workplace protections like against harassment and bullying, which is a pretty big issue, especially in like STEM labs when a lot of you know, grad workers are working in a lab with one professor who oversees the whole lab. And that professor has like a lot of power over them because they can, they, you know, have power over their academic trajectory, uh, over their working conditions, all these things. So there's a very uneven balance of power there. And so I think there was an even 
there's a much bigger push from the student researcher side of things to ratify a contract right away so that they could have some of these protections as soon as possible. So for that reason, I, I'm not surprised that the 2865 contract was ratified by like a smaller margin. But I do think that kind of muddied the water a bit because there was also arguments that we need to do the same thing, the two unions, so that we could either both stay on strike or both be done. So this pressure to stay on the same trajectory was pretty big. And so a lot of folks who were more involved in the SRU side of things were, you know, really pushing to ratify this contract. It was their first contract. They had kind of the idea of this is the first one. The next one we'll make sure is better. Whereas the TA Tudor Reader Union, we already have a contract that we do have some protections under. Of course, it wasn't it wasn't perfect, but we weren't fighting for like that bare minimum protections that SRU was. And so it seemed, at least on this campus, it was very much that SRU and student researchers were much more for ratification and the TAs, tutors, and readers were very much more for voting no for, for those reasons. Right. So we talked about the breakdown last time, what the contracts entail with regard to wages, other benefits, et cetera. And I won't make you explain those again. Listeners can head to our SoundCloud or wherever they get their podcasts to hear those specifics. But now that this contract is officially ratified, what would you say are the most controversial or disputed aspects of these new agreements? Yeah, so there's quite a few. I'd say one of the big ones is this new tiered wage system where some campuses are being paid more than other campuses for the exact same work. And again, it doesn't seem like that's based on cost of living or anything like that. It, if you look at the campuses that are getting that extra pay by the end of the contract, it seems like those are just the prestige campuses. Those are kind of the flagship campuses. And even though UAW has tried to frame it as a cost of living thing, like if you just look at data of cost of living from these different cities, it doesn't really hold up. I'd say that one's pretty controversial and a lot of people are coming from like quite well-founded places where they're worried that this is now going to weaken us in the future because it's kind of like splitting up campuses. These are some of the bigger campuses and if they're getting a better deal, are they less likely to go on strike next time around or to like fight for these campuses that are getting less? I mean, we see that the campuses who did get more voted yes at higher rates and so it's likely that that's a strategy from UC to kind of like split up workers and lessen our like our power and solidarity between campuses. Some other big ones are there was no real movement on NRST, which is the supplemental tuition that non-residents have to pay. And that after your first year, American citizens can become residents of California. So they don't have to pay that anymore. But international students can't become residents of California and have to pay that every year unless their department pays it for them. And so while NRST was put into the contract for the first time, so it's now in the contract, meaning next time we can bargain over it again, there wasn't any change in it. Like the UC just put the policy they already follow into the contract. So it makes it a little easier to enforce and it makes it so that UC can't stop doing that. Like they can't just decide to change their policy but it doesn't actually change the material conditions for international students over the life of this contract. They're still having to pay this besides their last three years if they're a PhD student. Some other ones are the 
quote unquote reasonable accommodations article that disabled workers should have accommodations or they should be able to get their needs met to be able to work and complete their their jobs. And this was one of the ones that was actually one of the articles that was agreed upon before, but it's still pretty controversial in that it gave up the most important thing according to disability advocates and workers across UC, which was not needing medical documentation for your needs to be met. And that's one, just because you shouldn't have to, you know, prove that you need something for your job to be able to get it, but also because it actually is more restrictive than what is required from the Americans for Disabilities Act and Title II. Um, So both of those are national laws about disability and accommodations, and the contract is still more restrictive than what is actually legally required. And so that's that's a big one. The child care subsidies are a bit higher than they were last time, but still nowhere near what it takes to afford child care in these cities. Um, you couldn't even afford like UC subsidized child care on on the subsidies that they're giving. And then a last one is that the workplace safety article of of which a core concept was cops off campus or demilitarizing, disarming UCPD was just completely forgotten the entire time. It was proposed once at the table and then the bargaining team never brought it up again. It seems like they just forgot it existed, honestly, because they didn't even remember until the very end that they had to say that they would withdraw it. And so that that one as well is quite upsetting. So we can see through all of these things that were dropped that, you know, it really is like international students, students of color, especially black students, disabled students, workers who are also parents. These are all like our most marginalized workers, our most vulnerable workers. And they're the ones whose needs were kind of pushed to the side to ratify these contracts. Got it. And again, listeners can check out our previous episodes together to hear a more expansive breakdown of what the contract entails. But right now, I wanted to dig more into what you just said at the end there about marginalized and vulnerable groups. I've seen a lot of pretty charged comments on UAW and SRU's social media posts about the ratification, particularly with regard to certain groups that were seemingly left out of this new contract. Uh, One comment on their latest Instagram post was from Karina Ott. She's a PhD student at UC Riverside, and she said, quote, honestly embarrassing to know that y'all are going to flex this as historic when the most marginalized were completely erased from this agreement. Are you able to provide any context to this quote based on your own personal involvement throughout the bargaining process? Yeah, so this this, uh, phrasing of like historic win or historic contract is kind of something that keeps coming up over and over again in like the social media and the emails that UAW is sending of trying to push this contract as like amazing and great, which it is better than what we had before. So in that sense, it is historic. It's better than history. But, you know, a lot of a lot of the people at Santa Barbara and at other campuses who didn't think this was sufficient would say just because it's historic doesn't mean it meets our needs. So that's a bit of kind of an ongoing like joke, I suppose, to, that this is such a historic win or this was like a historic strike, which it was like the biggest higher ed strike in U.S. history, right? Which is also, I think, what makes people pretty upset that we didn't get more out of this. Like this was the thing. We did it. 
and that we kind of gave in sooner than than we think we should have makes that frustrating. Like we had the opportunity this time. This was the biggest strike. We had all this momentum. So this like framing of like historic new contract or historic victory, historic win is kind of a phrase that's come up over and over again through official UAW communications of trying to sell the contract <laughs> as really amazing. With the phrasing, um, the idea that the most marginalized were completely erased from the agreement, I know that you touched on that in your other explanation, but to what degree were certain groups represented at the start with the demands that were being asked for? And to what degree have they really been completely erased, to quote Karina? Kind of like I, I mentioned before, international students were pretty centralized in the initial demands. Their needs were were centered in that getting rid of NRST, which is $15,000 a year, covering things like visa expenses and all the extra steps that international students have to go through to, you know, come to UC, do the exact same work as everyone else. Um, so they were pretty central. And again, nothing materially changed for them. Then student parents, the demand, I don't remember the exact number, but was a very significant amount for childcare subsidies to help, you know, student parents be able to afford to have children. Making that feasible was a big part. So through childcare subsidies, through dependent health care, which I forgot to mention, is also in the contract now and wasn't before, but you only now get dependent health care for children through UC if they don't qualify for Medi-Cal. If there are multiple parents in the household, that's combining the pay of both parents. So essentially, the only way you could really get UC insurance for a child is if you make more than, I think, 50K and you're a single parent, which is a very, very small group of of grad workers um so it is in the contract now we can next time around you know try to improve on that language that's already in the contract but it's not really changing anything for most people and then students of color and especially black students and workers are the most impacted by ucpd face the most surveillance and brutality um, from police and like i mentioned that article was just completely dropped we also know that students of color and Black students and Indigenous students are more likely to be first-gen students or come from, you know, working-class backgrounds, have less support from family that they can fall back on. And so those are also most likely, you know, the group of people who can't wait two years to start getting our biggest raise, um, who can't pay their rent right now and can't wait until next fall when like the first big-ish raise comes. So as it is now in 90 days from Friday, we would get the first raise, which is not, it's only like $200 more a month for this year for TAs. And then next fall, we get a second raise. And then, then fall after that would be the third raise that would get us up to the you know number that keeps going around, which is like at least 34K a year. So that's not till fall of 2024. And so, yeah, it's it's just so, so upsetting to me that a lot of these people, this was like, this contract was their last chance, essentially. Like a lot of people I've heard are like, now I have to drop out. Like this was, this was my last chance. Like 
I'm tens of thousands of dollars in debt. I'm buying all my food on a credit card and I can't afford my rent. And this was, this was my last, you know, chance. And I can't wait two years to get this raise. And even that raise is not going to be enough to pay my rent and buy my food. And so people are going to have to drop out. And then the last group, like I already mentioned, was, you know, disabled workers who also are, you know, have many more expenses that these, you know, small raises that are happening over time are not going to significantly help. There was also another article that was never even passed at the table surrounding COVID and public health to make it so that UC should continue to provide all these, these COVID resources, you know, free testing allowing workers, if they're teaching, ask their students that they need to wear a mask, things like this to to alleviate COVID concerns. So a lot of these groups, their demands were very central in the beginning of the strike. They used their their testimonials and like all these, you know, needs of the most vulnerable workers to, you know, motivate everyone to go out on strike. And then at the end of the day, almost all of those things, you know, didn't come to fruition. You kind of started to touch on this, but what happens now? Do these contracts just immediately become initiated? What does that look like? Yeah, so these contracts are ratified. They're essentially as official as it gets. Technically, I think our union has to get the okay from the international union to like officially accept them, but there's no reason they wouldn't do that if we've already voted to accept it. So now part of part of the accepting of the contracts was that we would drop the unfair labor practice charges against UC, which is what we're striking over. Um, so I don't know if that's officially happened since it's a holiday, but the strike's over because we've dropped these charges against UC and the contract is, you know, all but 100% official and accepted. And so, yeah, the the first kind of wage increase would be around 90 days from now. I actually learned in the last few days that the wording in the contract says at least 90 days. So there's not even a guarantee that that actually comes in 90 days. It's not at most 90 days. So that'll be interesting to see if UC's like, oh no, we couldn't make it happen. Maybe next month. And yeah, so the strike's over. There's a bit of still uncertainty about what that means for say like TAs who didn't do grading for six weeks and now have to do grading. But essentially when you when you're a TA and you get a work assignment, there's like an end day, like a cutoff end day. And those end days have already passed. So it's not actually the TA's job to do that grading now. Their job is complete. So we don't think that UC can like force us to do all the grading, say like over the holiday break. So that's what we've been telling people is like, you don't need to rush to finish it. Like it's not actually your job right now. We're going to figure out what that means. It's a bit more complicated because UC never stopped paying us so far. So if they hadn't paid us, it would have been very clear, like you have to pay us to make this up. Like we're not going to do this. Since they did pay us, we need to figure out like, what that means, but we've been telling people like you don't need to grade on Christmas Day because this this was ratified the twenty third. So people are like, do I need to like do the grading now? And essentially, as long as the grades get in by the end of winter quarter, then there's no impact on undergrads or anything like that. So we're trying to figure out what that means. But next quarter will 
start as normal with TAs helping with classes, things like that. And the contracts are are there now. So we'll be working under them. And the contracts go through, I think, summer of 2024. So it's actually a shorter contract than our union usually gets. So usually our contracts have been four-year contracts. This one's a three-year contract. So that's one of the positives that this was ratified is that we can go back to the bargaining table sooner than normal. So we don't have to wait four years to renegotiate. We'll start negotiating again in like two and a half years, two years, and could then, you know, strike again in two and a half years. I mean, that's something also that kind of supporters of the contract ratification and official communications have been pushing is like, okay, we should lock this in now. And then in two and a half years, we can strike again and get more. Personally, I don't want to go on strike for a third time during my PhD program. We did it this time. And I wish we had taken advantage of that and just done it all the way. So it's not like we can't improve on this in the future. But again, in the future, a lot of the people who are here now are either going to have graduated or been pushed out of UC and a better contract in three years doesn't address people's needs now. All right. Emily Fox, PhD student at UC Santa Barbara. Emily, as always, thank you. Yeah, thanks for talking with me.